Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase, get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Online news does not work in Canada. As a business, doesn't work. Doesn't work for the big news organizations with their online efforts. They are not thriving. They are not making up for all the bleeding with their traditional products. And it doesn't work for little guys starting stuff from the ground up. Can't make a go of it. They go out of business all the time. That's what we're told, anyhow. That's the conventional wisdom on this. Don't waste your money. Don't try. The population here is just too small. Display advertising is just not lucrative. No one's willing to subscribe. It's a bad business. Stay away from it. And yet... The TAI has been doing it since 2003. I think that they are Canada's longest-running internet-only news source. They do investigative reporting and opinion. They've been doing it for over 10 years. And I've always been curious how they do it. I was in Vancouver recently. I sat down with their founder and editor-in-chief, David Beers. Shortly before he announced that he was stepping down as editor-in-chief, he's going to be the executive editor. So if you want the job, submissions are open. And uh, Dave and I talked about the TAI, how it got started, how it works, what the model is, whether that's a problem. And talked about media in British Columbia, which is uh, not something that I knew a lot about, but which I learned a lot about and which I found pretty interesting. That's coming right up. Hold on for it. Thank you. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and uh, it's available here in Canada. And this time of year, we're all emerging from our, our winter like seclusion and uh, you know patio season and, and socializing, and it can be terrifically fun, but it can also create a lot of pressure. And some people get like anxiety, social anxiety from being out too much. What did Iggy Pop say about social life? It's torture dressed as fun. It doesn't need to be torture. I think it's just about finding like the right balance uh, of, of how much of other people do you want. I mean, we need each other, but I think that at a certain point, it can become overwhelming. And talking to somebody about yourself, about your social life, about your relationships um, is a way of gaining insight into what is right for you. It's not selfish to examine that with a professional. And as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Listeners of the show get 10% off of their first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's better H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is sponsored by Audible.com, where you will find 150,000 audiobooks on any topic you can imagine. And you can get one for free when you sign up for a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. I'll recommend something to you this week. Check out any of the books by John Ronson. If you listen to This American Life, uh, you might know John. He's a very funny Englishman. He is a really interesting and idiosyncratic journalist with a very specific point of view. He wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats. Don't hold that against them. The book is better than the movie. And uh, maybe Lost at Sea is a good place to start. I love this guy's work. John Ronson, check it out. He reads it. He's got a wonderful voice. And you can get that or any of 150,000 other books for free when you sign up at audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. Go do it. You've got a couple of directors with NDP ties. And you've, yeah. got, uh, you've got unions. Uh, that uh, invest in the Thai? Yeah, I mean, the way it works is that the unions don't directly invest in the Thai, but there is an organization called Working Enterprises, which is a capital fund, and its proceeds derive from companies that were started with union investment money a long time back. So uh -huh. basically, we don't, we're not taking money from union dues, but um, it's union... What I call it is union-affiliated capital. In other, okay. words, in other words, the people on the board of Working Enterprises are members of the labor movement. So I'm not trying to split hairs, but I am trying to be as specific as they would 
asked me to be. And the main message here is that a very innovative and public interest-minded labor movement in British Columbia has done something amazing, which is fund independent journalism, which they don't interfere with on any, in any way. I know you've said that you felt no editorial influence or expectation from the unions. Yeah. Why are they doing it? I mean, people don't do that unless there's something in it for them. So are they making money off of you guys? <laughs> no, no. Um, and, and again, the charter of working enterprises is with the, with the profits that they make from some of their straight-ahead company investments in, in profit-making companies. That profit is invested into socially, what they call socially responsible enterprises, so enterprises that match their values. So media diversity was a value that was held by the labor movement in B.C. back in 2003, diversifying media. And there's no mystery about why, why that would be. I was working at the Vancouver Sun in the lead-up to that. The Vancouver Sun's the most powerful paper in British Columbia. And we should say the Vancouver Sun is not a Sun no, news it's affiliated. No, it's not it's part uh, of Quebecor. But uh, it's post media. Back at the time, back in the, in those days, it was part of CanWest, which is now defunct. Right. But CanWest was uh, owned just about everything in BC. It owned the three major papers of record. It owned the television nightly newscast that got, if I'm correct, it got as much uh, viewership as all the others combined. Mm -hmm. It owned the major web portal, and it owned most of the weeklies as well. So it had basically a, a quite of a monopolistic position in BC media. So when we talk about Canadian media being corporate and concentrated yeah. between three companies in Vancouver, we're talking about it was one. It was one. And the only other, you know, the competitors, I guess, would be the CBC, mm -hmm. um, some powerful radio stations like CKNW, a good alternative entertainment weekly called the Georgia Strait. The Globe and Mail at that time was just starting up its BC edition. It, up to that point, it didn't have any particularly, uh, you know, beefed up BC reporting in BC. You call Vancouver a heartbreaking place to work as a, <laughs> a news, as a news person. Well, I said that back when I was, I think I was speaking to the Senate about this very issue because the situation was that when one company controlled so much of the media, it created uh, three problems. It suppressed competition among journalists. In other words, if you ran afoul of your employer by sticking to your principles. You couldn't walk across the street with and get a job just based on your merits. Yeah. Right? You couldn't say, well, we had a disagreement over this this story, but you gotta admit I'm a damn good reporter and get a job across the street. There just there just weren't jobs, right? There was nowhere to go. That was one problem. Another problem was um, just this this kind of idea of synergy or convergence, which is where uh, the the media was basically instead of instead of can, the fact that Canvas owned all this stuff, producing um, more content because they were more efficient, which is what they argued to the regulators. Instead, they just sort of cut in every one of their holdings. They just cut back and they yeah. re, and they repurposed a lot of their material. So therefore, you just got less coverage. That was a second problem, right? Yeah. And a third problem was. Um, it tilted the balance between the advertiser and the company. In other words, at a certain point, CanWest 
had managed to create so many layers of options for advertisers that it saw itself as an integrated one-stop shopping outlet for advertisers. And so you really felt in the newsroom the power of the advertiser. Yeah. Um, whereas in, in, a, in a news market where there's more competition, the papers might focus more on being scrappy or getting attention or causing a ruckus in order to, you know, be the feisty underdog that maybe gets a few more readers and then go to the advertiser and say, we're getting more readers now, so how about advertising? But since Can West was sort of fat and happy, there seemed to be kind of a lethargy in the newsroom about trying to break the next story or defy power or hold power accountable. Can West was a, a fairly major donor to the political party, the BC Liberals, um, the party that was elected in 2001 and is still in power in BC. So, you know, when you have when you have a monopolistic media organization that is donating money to one political party, and it's coverage was very slanted, mm-hmm. pro-BC liberal. Mm-hmm. I also sat in on some editorial meetings where, you know, union members would be in the room, and they were treated with disdain by some of the editors in the room. In fact, I remember one editor, this was told to me by a, by a union member. I wasn't there, but <clears throat> I believe what they say. The editor put his feet up on the desk and showed the bottoms of his shoes to the union member. I can't imagine them doing that to the head of Tech Comenco or, you know, yeah. um, TELUS or something like that, right? So, so for all those reasons, basically, the union movement felt that as a stakeholder in civil society, it was left out of the conversation. So they could have done a couple things with that fact. They could have doubled down on their own internal communications. They could have doubled down on their own advertising and propaganda efforts. They could have put out a, a newspaper that was basically satisfying to them every day and every story, but bored readers because it felt so much like a labor publication. But instead, they they heard me. I, was, I, I had left the Vancouver Sun, and they heard me arguing for diversifying the media. And uh, I wasn't saying what we need is a labor newspaper. I said what we need is something that represents middle to progressive values because actually most people in British Columbia and Canada, Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about radical notions here. I'm talking about just sort of fairly moderate over to the left social democratic values perhaps. There's a lot of people in Canada who hold those values and they weren't being represented in the media. You say that the reason why the unions invested in the TIE was because you have values in common. And I, I'm, right. I'm sure the labor, the labor movement has values, but it also has interests. Yeah. It has an agenda. Yeah. They would not fund you for long right. if they felt that you were operating against their agenda, would they? Probably not. But my view of it from the very beginning was that I had a lot of things I could do with my life. I'm not a guy who just has to, one way or another, eke out his existence working for one journalistic outfit or another in Vancouver. You know, I moved here. I don't want to sound... I just want to... Because you asked the question, I have to give you my context. Yeah. So when I moved here in um, 1990, 
I'd already worked at a national magazine in the United States as an editor. What magazine was that? Mother Jones magazine. Mm-hmm. And I'd, and by the mid-90s, I was writing for Harper's and National Geographic and other people. I had a perfectly fine freelance career. I'd written a book that did extremely well and um, was being asked to write another. And um, basically, I didn't have to do this. And that's what I told the folks who invested in the Tai. I said, I think this is really exciting. I think labor should be involved mm-hmm. in media. I think it should fund media. But only if it acts as somebody who, who wants to see a diversity of public interest journalism done. And only if labor is fine with there being some very bad days for labor on the Tai. Um, and basically what the Tai has ended up being over the last 10 years is a place where everything isn't cast left-right, left-right, left-right. Instead, there's debate and conflict and contested terrain within that set of values. So, for example, BC is is quite well-known as the place where Greenpeace started up. Mm-hmm. It's uh, had, I mean, the, the downfall of the last NDP government was basically its fights over logging. But if you read the Tai on any given week, you're going to find as many articulations of sort of sustainability and environmental points of view as you are going to find pro-union points of view. And as a matter of fact, if you want to look at the major industrializing issue in BC at the moment, which would be building the pipelines across BC to connect the oil sands up to the coast... You would imagine, well, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of a lot of welding jobs and a lot of Teamster jobs and what have you. And yet, we're about the only publication that has consistently done hard-nosed investigative reporting, raising tough questions about the pipelines. And I never get a call. No one ever harasses me from the union side or any other particular side. As a matter of fact, what's odd about editing the Tai. And maybe this is a sign that we're not as influential as I would like to think. I don't get calls from hardly anybody. Like, the last time the NDP called me and said, hey, we'd like your insights or we'd like to to uh, involve you in one of our media strategies or whatever. I can't remember. An entire election went by. Never got contacted by the NDP. Yeah. Now, I have a, I have a, a parliamentary bureau chief in Victoria and he interacts with the NDP all the time, but he never gets treated any in any way differently than just another parliamentary bureau reporter, right? So you know, from my point of view, that's kind of odd actually. I would think, for example in Great Britain the Guardian newspaper which people read and think is a valuable addition to the mix probably gets a call from the Labor Party once in a while and somebody wants to have an off-the-record conversation about things, but that doesn't happen with me, right? So, No special relationship is your point. No, mm-hmm. which I find odd, actually. I actually would have anticipated people trying at least to have a special relationship right. with me. Maybe I've been so gruff and reactive when people have tried that early on or when people like you were interviewing me that they just go well that guy seems to not want to play ball I don't know yeah but uh, 
I don't know that there's anything wrong with, uh, I'm not uh, casting any particular aspersions. Uh, you know, if, if some special interest wants to fund journalism because they're hoping yeah. that it'll be good for them and then they don't inter- interfere it's free country. We have free expression. That's fine. What I'm trying to do is give people some information about, I mean, there's just so many different right. um, news sources right. to, to the question, well, where is this coming from? Yeah. Why does this exist? Because the answer is is very rarely, oh, this exists because it's a money-making enterprise. <laughs> you know? Not if you do what we do, which is, well, see, basically what my background is in investigative and what I call solutions-focused journalism. Another, another word you could use for it is future-focused journalism. If you say that in a de- democratic realm, constantly reporting about what went wrong yesterday and whose fault it was and why they need to be fired simply engenders cynicism, mm-hmm. which I'm sad to say seems to be the culture in a lot of the newsrooms I've worked in. If you say, if you say uh, you know, that, that looking backwards at yesterday... And reporting on what went wrong is gonna is, doesn't really advance a conversation about how can we fix problems. If we could be somewhere in three, four, or five years, help us see where that could be and help us learn how to streak for that. Right? Yeah. If you don't have a forum that's doing that, then you're really not. You're only doing half the job as a news media, as far as I'm concerned. And so, you know, the question would be if you diversify media then you're able to have those future-focused or solutions-focused conversations coming from various sets of values. What I see right now is that a lot of the discussion of the future and where we're going as a country is mediated through very conservative media. And there are agendas. You say, you know, special interests can fund media. I would say special interests almost always fund media. I can't imagine a media... That isn't funded by special interests. What I would see with the CBC is that there was a set of ideals that originally created it, but it's very subject to special interest week to week and month to month in terms of its survival, its budget, its you know, its its, its internal culture, who gets hired and fired. Um, so, really, what we're saying here is that not just what gets reported in your paper. I mean, very often you'll hear reporters saying, I never get bothered. Nobody ever troubles me. Right, because guess what? You're a nice fit for the kinds of questions we would like to raise in society. Mm -hmm. You seem interested in the questions we're interested in raising. And asking those questions is not the same thing as being handed a script that morning, being told, write this no matter what you find out, out in the world. It's very different. But if I have 20 minutes with you, and let's say someone from the Fraser Institute has 20 minutes with you, we're going to ask a different set of questions, right? Because we come from different values. And so to me, that is what diversifying the media landscape is. It's having different ownership structures um, out there and different teams of skilled, traditionally skilled journalists who can roam around and ask different sets of questions and get them out into the public. So to go back to your point about well, you know, money-making, yeah, you're not going to make money at this stuff, right? You're not. Now, the tie is actually, we've taken, uh, we started with uh, under $200,000 in investment from the people you're talking about, which mm-hmm. is laughable if you compare it to, like, what Sun Media is pouring into, you know, its TV shows and what have you. I mean, it's just hardly any money at all. And we didn't even have a website. 
So we had to build a website and start putting content up for $190,000 the first year. And what I told my investors is I'm only interested in doing this if um, we can do something of such a high quality that it attracts investment, advertising, and partners based on that quality. And I said, we'll know very soon. We'll know extremely soon. And two things could happen. You could pressure me and harass me and tell me what you want on the website, in which case I'll quit because I've got other things to do. Or it could go very well, and it could be just a a decent piece of, you know, it could be an addition, a vital addition to the conversation, the way the Guardian newspaper is in England. In which case it will attract further investment and support that will be measurable and then you can decide whether you want to keep investing. Well, to this, at this point now, our budget's up more closer to a million dollars, right? And that money comes from many, many other sources. From your readers, from advertisers, from investors, from the unions? Well, from the unions. I mean, the only other way that unions can participate in the TIE would be to advertise. Mm-hmm. So we do run some union ads, yeah. I think that's pretty logical when you look at who our audience is, right? Yeah, I think it's just important for people to know what they're getting and why. So you're in a position where you're free to, say, do a long-term investigation into union yeah. corruption, and no one is overtly stopping you, but yeah. there is there is the chance that that would cost you something. So, there, so, so what we're depending on is yeah. your integrity as a journalist who has other things you could be doing that would not dissuade you from doing that if you wanted to pursue that. But institutionally, that might be a problem yeah. for the institution that you're running. Well, we've, we've done investigative pieces that relate to the union movement. Yeah. Right? But if you wanted to say, Dave, is that your stock and trade? I mean, here you have this great access to the union movement. So are you loosing your investigative reporters every day to find out how they're up to no good? No. Because let's go back to my original analysis. You don't have a bunch of media organizations that are sort of, uh, that are funded with no uh, sense that they are adding. Let me back up. I'm speaking in a negative. Every media organization that I know in Canada is paid for because the people who put money into it, either through advertising or through investment, and by the way, subscriptions are a tiny percentage of almost every media organization, and of course, zero percentage of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. So investors and advertisers basically are investing in a space, a space in the national conversation that they think aligns with their interests. Let's get real. Mm -hmm. That's how media is funded. In this country. Yeah. Well, in most countries, right? Media makes money in certain places. Well, it makes money at the same time. One of the reasons it makes money is when it is aligned, when it's a space right. that orchestrates the conversation that people want, and therefore advertisers want to be there to be next to that conversation. Now, if that conversation is super pro-business, super pro-conservative, and, and those conservatives have business interests, then you've got a really nice advertising model. Yeah. But if you are actually poking the bear all the time, you're raising tough questions. How's the how's the going to make a bunch of money questioning Enbridge's ambitions? Have you noticed like every time you turn on the TV, there's another Enbridge ad? Those Enbridge ads are worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, there are entire sections of newspapers sponsored by Exactly, Android. and therefore at this point, at this point, corporate media has created an advertising environment 
for Enbridge mm-hmm. that that's rewarded to, for with Enbridge advertising. Can it afford to be critical of Enbridge? I don't know. Why did Post Media shut down its entire parliamentary bureau recently, including Mike D'Souza, who is doing excellent reporting on Enbridge? I don't know. I'm just saying, right? Yeah. And so my question is, the more we become a petro state and we, we become, a, we become a, an, a, an economy that's so dependent on the oil sands and petroleum companies, how do you design a publication that is irritating and angering petro interests, right? How do you do that? So, yeah, it makes money. But let's look at how it makes money. Mm-hmm. Again, it aligns with interest groups. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the TIE was created in a pretty clear-eyed fashion. Right, uh, I'm I'm a I'm an old guy. I've been around this business for 30 years. I've worked for the Hearst Corporation. My first publisher was William Randolph Hearst III. We got along pretty good, actually. I worked for the Vancouver Sun for three years. Conrad Black was my boss. There, mm-hmm. Right, I used to sit in on conversations with Barbara Emil. Right, so I'm I'm a team player in those settings, but I also got a front row seat to how media diversity is constricted and it's not always with some cabal some star chamber deciding what they're going to put out there every day it's just a confluence of interests and it's become very constricted in Canada there aren't that many players their sources of advertising revenue are quite constrained and therefore there's quite the need for diversification and when you want to do quality journalism it costs money yep. thank God we're through that whole period in the mid 2000s where you had to go to endless conferences and hear these people who'd never done journalism talk about how citizen journalists were going to save us all. Thank God we're done with that. Now at least everybody knows the media costs money, and we've got things like Kickstarter and crowdsourcing of funds to pay for it. I mean, to me, that's very hopeful, right? Sure. And we make a lot of money that way from our readers now, right? So I think if I hear you right, you know, they've got their backers who have their interests and you have yours and they can investigate union corruption and you'll investigate uh, Enbridge corruption and maybe somewhere in the mix uh, we'll get to the truth. You have to marshal your resources as efficiently as possible. If my goal is to diversify the media, why would I be focusing on issues that that other organizations are going to get huge brownie points for investigating? And then why would I ignore other issues that I know nobody's going to cover? You can only have a healthy media ecosystem when there are many creatures swimming around in the ecosystem. Yeah, I hear you. And I think that one of the things that I think hamstrings the CBC is that they are beholden to this idea that they serve no one or everyone. uh, And they can't quite get their story straight on which it is. Right. You know, and also what I find... um, And I'm kind of waiting for the second layer of independent media to develop in Canada because what I'm I'm noticing as these newsrooms constrict now and as the CBC, as great as it is, is a bit back on its heels Mm -hmm. with funding cuts and and some concerns about political direction uh, from Ottawa, what I find is that a diverse, uh, reasonably funded um, media ecosystem kicks up stories that they don't have to take huge risks on their initial investigations. So, for example, the TIE did a great labor story. And the people who invested in the TIE, I'm sure, were very happy about it. We started looking at this coal mine in Tumblr Ridge, and they were going to bring in a bunch of temporary foreign workers from China to do the coal mining. We said, really? Like, we can't do that ourselves here? 
we started looking in on it, and we started to learn all about the temporary foreign worker program. This was a couple of years ago. Yeah, you were right. Yeah, and one of the things we found out was that, contrary to the law in Canada, um, workers coming in on this program were being charged $1,500 by middle middlemen in China. And we knew that because our reporters had worked in China and knew people who could read the websites, and so read them in Chinese. Mm-hmm. This is a very high-risk fishing expedition, right? Nobody's going to—I can't imagine somebody at the CBC saying, find someone who speaks Chinese and read all the websites in China next week and get back to me. I mean— I can imagine it. Maybe, but I mean, like— Didn't happen, but— There's so many many stories out there, right? Yeah. Right? So I'd say any story that takes two or three or four days of of fishing is is more of a scarce commodity nowadays. Anyway, we found out that, that this was going on. We put that out, and then the CBC did their own investigation. Mm-hmm. And they found out that it was true themselves. They verified it themselves. And that was a wonderful moment, I thought, for Canadian media, because we took the risk, and we had our, our areas of interest. We're interested in covering yeah. labor-related stories. Abuse of and labor we, did our, yeah. we did our work, but we're the tie. So should anybody really... Make that, like, does that go to the top of the chart with a bullet right away on the media landscape? Not necessarily, except the CBC said, hey, I know that reporter, I know the Taibs, their stories don't blow up, so why don't we look at this? They verified it, and suddenly it became a great story. They credit you? I can't remember, you know, but, you know, and then, the, and then BC did an investigation of the government. So basically what what you get there is you go back to my my idea of there being an ecosystem mm-hmm. and the creatures aren't always predatory and competitive you know if you have a if you have a, a healthy enough ecosystem with enough creatures swimming around big and small they can be cooperative they can be collaborative they can thrive and yeah. and and do better because of the diversity. Well, right? yeah, no matter how... I mean, I, I, I saw this firsthand. You, you, yeah. No matter how small the creatures are, they can they can get the CBC to report on the CBC yeah. if you kick up enough ruckus right. and find something out yeah. and, and look at a story that nobody else is looking at. And I think that's um, more and more where we're headed, right? It mm-hmm. used to be understood that you had, like, these I-teams and these you know, all these young, eager reporters just chomping at the bit because um, that was the only way they're going to make their way up these vast intricate chains within these large news organizations and that's all over now right instead you've got people running their asses off trying to cover a bunch of stories at once beats are drying up areas of expertise in-house are drying up because people are spread thin or they're just trying to fill the time right or, or fill the space so maybe one way to look at it is the tie has sort of become the labor beat reporter in western canada and other people yeah. and other people can can grab our stories if they want right yeah we've also become we have andrew nikiforic as one of our writers andrew nikiforic just won a a lifetime writer's achievement award um and he's he's the famous author of, of uh, a number of books about energy and um, uh, except he can't really get published in a lot of places. That's odd. Hmm. He keeps writing very critical investigative stories about the oil industry. It's really hard for him to find an outlet. Hmm. He gets awards from his peers for being a genius reporter. He writes books that sell huge. When we put him up on our website, he gets a thousand tweets. Mm-hmm. He gets three thousand Facebook recommends. Hmm. Seems to have an audience. Can't get published, huh? Well, 
He's got a platform on the Taiyi. He writes two, three times a week now for the Taiyi. Stories go gangbusters. He's always writing another book. He has a life. He has a platform. He has a base. We get to have Andrew Nikoforic in Canada because we have a diverse media ecosystem. And you pay your journalists, and you've been doing so since uh, since 2001 you started? 2003. I used to be a little embarrassed about how much we paid him, but now that we sort of... Pay, now, now that we pay more than most people because everybody else's rates have gone so far down. Yeah, you haven't gone up. I don't know <laughs> if I should feel proud of that or what, but I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't gone up much, but, but everybody else plummeted. So, How'd you lose your job at the Vancouver Sun? Well, no one ever told me, which was interesting. Yeah. I can tell you a sequence of events. Um, Arrived there in 98, edited a series called The Fate of the Strait, which won a National Newspaper Award, was given a section of the paper to edit or to reinvent, culture section, which I did. It was called Mix. It won uh, Magazine of the Year, Western Magazine Awards. You know, in other words, I was doing my job, doing my job well as, a, as basically a creative project editor at the paper. Got kicked upstairs, a position called the Chief Features Editor under uh, the current editor. He left. Crookshank. Yeah. A new editor came in, Neil Reynolds, not with us anymore. And he said, I'd like you to write columns instead. Okay. I mean, that'll happen, right? You get a new management in, they want to do different things with different editors. And um, shortly after I started writing my column, 9-11 happened. And I started writing a lot about... um, freedom of speech issues and how we don't want to foster a new McCarthyism here at the same time we're Mm -hmm. doing due diligence on terrorism, right? I didn't think it was very radical stuff. One of the pieces I wrote, I wrote a series. I was kind of into like number five on that series, Writing Weekly. And I wrote about a, a very outspoken radical academic at UBC who had compared the U.S. to Al-Qaeda, basically saying it had blood on its hands. And there was a big um, backlash to her statements, including in the pages of The Sun. And then I called out the backlash. And uh, nine days later, I was fired. And um, no reasons were given. They said it was for business reasons, but no one else got fired, so given the fact that Can West was carrying $3 billion in debt at that moment. I'm not sure my salary made a huge dent in that, especially since I was writing a column, so I was at a reduced salary compared to when I was a top editor. So, you know, I, I took three lessons from that. The first one was, you know, I might have been fired for what I was saying. Any company that could do that shouldn't be in charge of pretty much the entire media landscape in BC. You think you might have been fired for what you said? Well, nobody told me. I kept asking and nobody would would say. But what do you think? I think so, and I think basically um, it might have fed into classic kind of corporate infighting too, because there were some people who, because I'd risen quickly through the ranks, were kind of concerned that I might elbow them aside for something at the paper. Um, I wasn't really striving for a higher position, but whatever. Um, 
but the other thing that I took from that is, well, now I'm screwed. I don't have a job, and there's nowhere else I can go to get a job, really. That was a real eye-opener for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that led me to kind of go on the hustings and say, I think we need, a, I think we need to diversify media in this, in this part of the world. Where would you say that? Uh, I said that. I gave some interviews. I, I, wrote a, I wrote a big piece in Vancouver Magazine. Yeah. Um, and said it there. It was, a bit of, it was a bit of an insider's account at the Sun as well. And then I, there was this, sort of this barnstorming moment where I would, you know, like the CAJ would have an event at a bar, and then I'd just sort of go there and hold forth. And, and people started coming to these things. It was kind of fun. It was like it's the closest thing I've ever been to a tent revival preacher, right? And speaking the gospel of media democracy. And people were coming, and people were listening. And, um, and then uh, the the labor movement came came my way because yeah. they'd heard that heard me saying these things and they said you seem to be thinking the same way we are when i look at american you know this is the new wave of online news startups yeah. they're going for clicks yeah and they're scientific yeah about headlines that will generate clicks yeah. And even Gawker is looking yeah. old school next to Upworthy and BuzzFeed. Yeah. You don't play that game. No, we don't. And anybody who is trying to make money off clicks in Canada is playing a mugs game. There aren't enough people in Canada to really create enough clicks for anybody to make enough money. And the people who are doing such mass media, like the Globe and Mail and, and the Star what have you, are all competing with each other for their clicks, so they will they will cannibalize each other's click yeah. content, right? So basically, I don't think people even realize that because yeah. you know the media gets accused. Oh, you just want clicks in Canada. No, if I had every Canadian no. read my stuff, you won't make enough against Google display ads. Nothing. I don't think I could support myself. No, no. And let's look at let's look at the Huffington Post as a model, for example. Yeah, they're very click driven, right? The Huffington Post in Canada has 30 editors and two reporters. So if that's the media that you think is the ideal, 30 editors, what are they doing? They're, what does it mean to be an editor? It means you're surfing the web and repurposing. Uh, you know, look, I, I know some of the editors that have been post, and I think that, that even what it means to be an editor versus a reporter is changing, and some of them do original journalism, they pick up the phone and they ask questions. But if your point is they're not feet on the ground reporting the news, yeah. I mean, that's just true. The point is, when you're click-driven, you're so busy repurposing other people's stuff or advancing a story that somebody else has started because it's already showing up on Chartbeat and getting hits, that you're not bringing new, brand-new stories into the conversation. Yeah. And that's what the tie was invented to do. It was invented to diversify the conversation. So the way to diversify the conversation is not to look around for the latest thing that press progress has done and then republish it and go there. We've, we've reinforced the echo chamber, right? No, we want to make a, an original contribution to the conversation. And if it's solid reporting done in traditional ways and it's an important story, the fact that it arose from our set of questions as opposed to somebody else's is irrelevant. It's a real story. Yeah. And now it has to fight and compete. And maybe one of those 30 Huffington Post editors will notice it and repurpose it. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's our contribution. Okay? That's what we are created to do. Not mill clicks. You found something that works that lets you do journalism. I mean, that's uh, that's what everybody's trying to figure out. Yeah. Well, not only that, but, but it... 
it allows me to create a a community uh, and, a, and a culture of doing journalism that is exactly the one that I would have wanted to have come up in. So what you have at the TIE is you actually have a bricks and mortar office. It's not virtual. You got people who come to work. You have idea meetings on Mondays where anybody can come and throw out their ideas and get ideas. Most people involved in the TIE are in their 20s or early 30s, and they they have a not just a place to apply their trade, but a place to train up and build capacity. They get to hold down a beat mm-hmm. and develop expertise in a beat, which then builds their reputation, which then they can convert into whatever else they want to do down the road. So the TAI actually, yeah, I mean, you can measure us on the fact that we, you know, you can read us and decide whether you think our journalism is worthwhile or not. You can also say, well, at least you found a way to, you know, stay alive in journalism. But I would go one step further. I would say we found a way to create a journalism culture, which is quite special and quite supportive of journalists who want to be more than a, a clickbait operative. That's your Canada Lens show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read everything I get. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. I make this show with Christopher DeMello. You can go to audibletrial.com slash canadaland for your free audiobook right now. And the next podcast will be up on Monday. If you like this show, recommend it.